0: Seated, and as you're seated, take your copy of God's Word and turn to the Book of Matthew. We'll be in Matthew chapter five, and I'm going to focus on verses 21 and 20 through 26. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles available in the foyer. Encourage you to pick one up. Uh, If you want a Bible, you can keep a Bible. And um, many of you have apps on your phones or whatever you can use. But be Matthew chapter five, starting verse 21. We're going verse by verse, section by section through the, the book of Matthew, and as we go through, we see the compelling life of Christ. And we've, uh, over the last few times together, we have uh, been looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which gives to us a pattern of life, a pattern of life in being a disciple of Christ. What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to imitate him? What does it mean to look like Christ? And what he's done is he's laid so much of this out in the Sermon on the Mount, sort of light to preach it through it. And today, specifically, he gets into um, what well, today he specifically gets into. He gets into specific applications. Up till now, it's been a lot of introduction and some broader, bigger principles that help us to understand life as a disciple. Well, now he's getting down to some specific application. You'll see that as soon as we get into our passage today. So, again, we'll be in Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 21. This is God's word. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. This is the word of our God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come, we come to be under your word, your God. You have spoken to us. You have uh, communicated us the path of life. And Father, as we read this passage and we just know in reading it, you're gonna challenge us in it, Father, because this just hits right to the, the core of what all of us experience in this life. So we pray, Lord, send your spirits, bring challenge, bring comfort, bring encouragement, bring help and healing and strength to do the things that you've done because those are things that come from you. And so Father, we just ask you to do that work even as we meditate this passage this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our passage today deals with the seriousness of anger and the seriousness of having unreconciled relationships. And those things were important to Jesus as he continues in the Sermon on the Mount and they need to be important to us. And you probably know the power of anger because you've experienced it at some point in your life. Uh, Maybe you've heard yourself say things that you wish you didn't say things that you wish you could take back, words that hurt relationships that you're in, and maybe even permanently. Maybe even anger is hurting the relationships that you are in right now. But you justify it because of the things that others are doing. Maybe you've already hurt others in your anger. You also know the power of anger when you've been on the receiving end of it. You could probably remember times that you've been yelled at, cursed, or insulted. And for many it is a tragic, ongoing experience in life. We know when we experience it how it inflames us and at one time and at the other time crushes. All of us have had first hand experience of the negative consequence of anger. And that's what we need to consider it as Jesus lays this before us in the Sermon on the Mount. As I mentioned earlier, you know, this passage is the first direct practical application Jesus gets to in the Sermon on the Mount. I love working to the Sermon on the Mount because a life of holiness, a life of devotion to God is just laid out so much in it. Um, and to this point, he's really set out, this is the way we, you know, these are some big principles for what I'm gonna say. These are some ways we understand the Sermon on the Mount and the way that it rolls its way out. But, but here he gets that specific application. The specific application of anger and of reconciliation. The Sermon on the Mount is a pattern. It's a pattern for Jesus' disciples. It's a pattern that he expects his disciples to follow in. It's a pattern that's focused on personal holiness, a call to be personally devoted to Christ, a holiness that affects every area of our lives inwardly and how we think and how we feel, as well as in the things we do in our outward expressions. It's an important pattern in the world that we live in. Many times we may be compelled, the world even offers a different focus than what Jesus did. The religious influencers of Jesus' day, they were the Pharisees and the scribes, and they acted as if and they had this religious life completely figured out that others should do as they did, believe as they believed. But as Jesus goes into, into the Sermon on the Mount, and we see it right here, he goes into a deeper level of personal holiness, a, a, a deeper or higher level of character than was being focused on by the influencers of his day. They were focused on external um, events and national interests. The world around us will often tell us that we're justified in sinful anger. As long as we don't break a law, the world says we're okay. So the devil will accuse God and others of doing us wrong. And our own hearts are often so quick to hold on to an offense and to stew on that and even act on it. Anger is a problem for every one of us. And it's a bigger problem that we may admit Uh, David Pallison, an author, he wrote a book called Good and Angry, Redeeming Anger, Irritation, Complaining and Bitterness. Good and Anger is a book, And, and the title of chapter two in the book asks this question. Chapter two, do you have a serious problem with anger? And the whole chapter consists in one word, can you guess what that word is? <laughs> yeah, is that your answer or is that the word? Okay, well regardless, you're right. It is one word and it is the word yes. You do have a serious problem with anger. And I love this in the book because he has a study guide attached to it and even says, go back and read the whole chapter again. And they're like, oh, I, I can handle this kind of homework teacher. I'll do it five times. But it's a good reminder that, that anger is a problem for each and every one of us. Um, you know, like I do, that anger hasn't really helped. It's caused damage. And so Jesus leaves in this passage no, no place for sinful expressions of anger. But he really challenges the, you know, our own self-justification of anger. Anyone who follows Jesus in the, way, in, in the way that he calls us to here is gonna be different than the world. And he doesn't leave us to address this alone. And and that's the good news is in the scriptures, he shows us how grace, how God's grace helps us address anger in a healthy, God-glorifying way. So how do we handle our anger and the damage it does? That's our three points today. Number one, know that anger is no small thing. Know that anger is no small thing. So Jesus starts out addressing the commandment that probably everyone knows doesn't matter who you ask probably on the street you could ask them what are the Ten Commandments and you might get a blank stare and you say no seriously give me one of them and they'll probably get this one you shall not murder right that's the sixth commandment if you're keeping track and we see that in Matthew five twenty one, Jesus says this you've heard that it was said to those of old you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment so he takes this command which is out of Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder, but then he adds something to it and that is an addition out of Numbers 35, 30 or similar passages. Is that a person who was found guilty of murder was liable to the death penalty in, in ancient Israel inside of their laws. The commandment against murder came with a legal consequence. Now pretty much everybody knows that murder is wrong. The unjustifying taking of someone else's life, it's a sin against God, it's a sin against that person. But why is it a sin against God? We can think of a lot of reasons, but it's important to highlight the first one that the Bible lays out to us in Genesis 9-6, reminding us the reason why murder is such an awful sin when we read this, that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image so what's wrong with murder is that each person has been created in the image of God that they have rights they have a responsibility to represent God in this world and to strike at another person to take their life is to strike the very image of God it's to kill the image of God that's set right before us and in this way, it's a direct defense to God as well as stealing from somebody whose life was taken. Murdering someone is to look lightly on the image of God in the person in front of us. And, you know, as we have already acknowledged as a congregation, this is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's the Sunday that closest to the original Roe versus Wade um, the Supreme Court decision. But it's time especially for us to pray for our nation, pray for pro-life work. You know, pray that we would see the value of life from womb to the tomb. That that littlest embryo inside of the womb is an image bearer of God. That the most elderly person, wherever they are, even in the nursing home or wherever, that they still are the image of God, still reflecting something of God's glory. And that life has value. God, and he's the one who gives, and he's the one that takes Life And so you're know, looking forward to having Christian Johnson come in person, that was video, he's coming in person tonight to share what they're doing and to support that work around our own community and to see how we can support others in, in, in that work. Now Jesus though, he goes beyond the issue of murder because he addresses a false legalistic view of God's law. Now it's false because it's limited. It's an approach that looks at the law as a checklist to make sure I haven't done something. A checklist of seeing, well, you know, as long as I support these social standards that murderers shall be punished, you know, as long as we got that right belief and right action, we must be okay, right? But that approach failed to see that the law gave overarching principles on how we treat others. And the principle that we need to consider is that every person is created in the image of God, and so any sin against them is against the image of God. It means that particularly the sins of hatred and other sinful expressions of anger. And we see that as we look in verse 22, as Jesus gets to the heart of the commandment. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the counsel, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to to the hell of fire. We see Jesus moving past that physical murder and showing that even anger and insults, they're a violation of the commandment, the sixth commandment, that God will judge that behavior. You see the escalation in verse 22. It starts with this emotional response of anger, but it continues to go on into action, that there's an insult. The word used there is raka. It means the person is empty. It's an empty person. It's an insult towards them but it finally ends up in a public humiliation of the person. The word for you fool is moros, which gives us our word moron, right? It's a slur to somebody's reputation by calling them impious, unspiritual, immoral. And in all this, Jesus reminds us that while murder is something that rightly bothers us, we should be concerned also about anger and all its expressions. It reminds us there's an accountability, there's an accountability to that, to those actions. We'd be rightly judged for our anger towards others. Those outbursts are deserving of God's judgment. Now before anyone can rest themselves then in the mere external compliance of the law, Jesus shows that anger is a sin. And why is that? It's because anger is the first step towards murder. You know, anger, you know, maybe the desire that person wasn't there. Maybe that desire they were not acting the way that they are. If you've ever watched a, a television show or some sort of series on, on, and there's a murder that's committed, or maybe you listen to some true crime podcast or something like that, you know what detectives look for? They look for, right? Who was angry with the person who was murdered? Because, you know, that's a compelling, you know, that's evidence or something towards, uh, what do you call it? That's a motive. That's a motive. That's what I was looking for. That's a motive for the death. Because that's the way that anger moves. Anger moves uninhibited. If it's uninhibited, it moves in that direction. When you think about the reasons why we might be angry. My, and my favorite definition of, of anger is this, is that anger is the emotional response to a, to a perceived wrong. Anger is an emotional response to a perceived wrong or it's an emotional response to a perceived evil. So when we perceive something has been done to us or to somebody that we love, then we have, and we have an emotional response with us, within us, makes us tense, makes us ready for action. I mean, that's anger. And I think it's wrong to say that all anger is necessarily sinful. I mean, there are evils in the world that ought to anger us. Rape and murder, abortion, lying, I mean, th- there are things that anger us. Our problem is, is it really, um, in all the things that make us angry, how many of them are not justified? I think we can probably be more rightly anger, angry when our anger is directed towards the pain and suffering of others. We may feel anger when we see somebody being injured by something or an offense towards God. Maybe we can be a little bit more um, right in our evaluations along then. But the real problem is that our perception of wrong, it has been so damaged, it's been so broken by sin. Right, what makes us most angry? We often get most angry about personal things. When somebody offends us, when somebody gets in the way of our goals, when somebody gets in the way of our desires, our ambitions, we get wrongly angered because we're inconvenienced. And because it is part of our experience, you know, we lack the judgment to see if we're really justified to be angry. I mean, maybe the issue wasn't that big of a deal. Maybe you did something wrong. But because of sin, because of our limited perspective on what is happening, we often get angry when we shouldn't. James chapter four, verses one through three speaks to this. James chapter four, verses one through three, and it's a good go-to verse when you feel angry and to search, let God search you through. James four, sorry, verse one. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What indeed? What is it that causes so many quarrels and so many fights in our world? Churches or families or whatever. Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? The word for passions is inordinate desires, extreme desires. Those desires are the things which are causing those fights. And where are they there in you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. I think he's speaking figuratively here, right? Like Jesus is talking about, murdering with our tongue. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You know, we could think of examples of this. We have our passions, we have our desires, and they become demands on the people around us. Some simple examples come in traffic, right? You know, that expectation that, you know, I'm going to get there in a certain amount of time and I demand that I do. So the construction zone happens to be there for some reason. It just showed up to spite you, to get in your way of getting to work on time today. And so you get angry. Or maybe children. They take too long to get ready for church. Maybe they make a mess and we get angry, but both of those are losing perspective, right? I mean, these are just children who are there. I mean, they need to learn. They need to grow. Be patient with them. And that construction zone is not there to get at you. <clears throat> the other problem that we have is not just a lack of perspective, but sometimes we elevate the wrong past what we've experienced. For example, maybe somebody cuts you off, right? And, you know, that's it's dangerous. You know, it's selfish and, you know, all those things. You can think of all the reasons why it's just, you know, maybe bad to get caught up by a dangerous driver. You know, but then we flip out We start driving aggressively. We start yelling at them, flashing symbols, you know, saying things we shouldn't say. And that response becomes excessive beyond the actual infraction which was ever given to begin with. And so we have this problem of getting angry at the wrong things and then excessive response is beyond the, the thing that to begin with, and it adds the sin. So unless our anger is dealt with, unless it's brought under God's authority, it will show up in destructive ways. If you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, it gives some very important instructions. And very important instructions which remind us in just the reality of anger and but also a call to what we do with it. Ephesians 4, 26, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. We're reminded that there are things that are going to happen which are going to make us angry. Maybe some of them are, uh, you know, rightly make us angry, but maybe there are things that wrongly make us angry, but the truth is that there are times that we are going to experience that emotion, that tensing emotion of becoming angry. Well, what do we do when that happens? It's not what do we do, it's what do we not do, right? We do not sin, Do not sin, whatever it is that's there, don't let that anger translate into something which is a sin against God or another person. And why? Because when we do, we give opportunity to the devil. He destroys, he divides, he tears down. And often, how does he do it? It's by our uncontrolled anger. So what we do with our anger makes a difference. right? Does it lead into insults? Does it lead into slander? Do we harbor bitterness? Do we harbor unforgiveness? Are we looking for a chance to get revenge? These are all the forbidden results of anger. In this passage, Jesus focuses on the words that a person uses. First thing he says, insults. He talks about slander. These are all ways that we use words to injure others. We think that we can use angry or insulting words to get someone to change, to get someone out of our way, to put them under submission. You know, Torture exists inside of our world um, to get people to change their ways. In some countries they call them re-education camps. There's no question what they are, they torture, they harm people in order to change their mind forcibly and so that they would live a different way. And the hope is that by that torture, that they can change. You know, get citizens to be compliant. Well, insults are a way to torture the average person, but for somebody who won't use physical violence. We we might be too afraid to punch or to kick or to push and still use insults to hurt someone. We can use slander to kill another person in the court of public opinion. I mean, they may still be alive, but when we speak badly about them in order to reduce their influence, in order to get what we want, we violate this command. It's it's awful to think what we are doing. We, We use our words as weapons against others when we deal with them in anger. We think about it this way. We see that the same wicked root But as in the most evil person you can imagine, the most wicked person, most evil person in the world that you can think of, that root has a place even in our own hearts. It's been said that the difference between me and someone like Hitler is ambition and power. You know, I I don't have the power to murder millions of people, but I do have the power to insult. I have the power to hurt. I have the power to tear down the people around me. It's the same root. The one that shows that we need God's forgiveness and we need God's grace. So what ends up being, forgiven, being forbidden here? The desire to kill, but also the hatred towards others and the insulting activity towards others. And it shows us the, sp- the power, the, the, the spirit of God's law. It's to see the image of God in others and to honor that image as we honor God. Unless we put our anger under God's authority, it will find a way to release itself into our words and actions. In our anger with others, we can treat them as if they're dead to us. Even at times that we have a real obligation to them, but we still treat them as dead. Our anger isolates others from us and isolates us from others, all with the negative consequences that go with that. Sinful words that tear others down And cause emotional injury are forbidden. We're not to murder others with her words. It comes up in abusive relationships and homes. Man may claim he has never hit his wife, but through the insults he levels on her by the threats he makes to her, his actions are violent, harmful to the wife, and dishonoring to God. A mother may say she has never spanked her child, but through belittling, neglecting, and tearing them down does violence that child. Our words shape the impressions that others have. And so, you know, through things like slander, we injure people by tearing down their reputation so that they lose jobs, they lose friendships, they lose privileges, they lose money. They can even lose their lives in some cases through violence to the person. I was thinking about how the Nazis in Germany, they turned hatred towards the Jewish people. It's through the fabrication of stories. It's through the um, use of these special stars that they would have to wear. It's through the parading of the swastika. You know, using harmful language, using hateful symbols in order to make a case that a certain people don't deserve to exist. And we see the power of words. We see the power of those symbols to create hate, to do atrocities, like the Holocaust. As James 3 tells us, our words can cut like knives. James chapter three, starting in verse nine, for James three, nine and 10, just see the power of the tongue. It can build up and it can tear down. With the tongue, he says, we bless our Lord and Father Right? We can use our tongue to praise God today. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Right? I mean, this is believers. Right? We can bless God with you know, one day and then the next minute be cursing people. And you see that connection. They're made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Definitely they ought not to be so. So think about your life right now. You know, what place does anger have in your life? Are you following the command to be angry but do not sin? So examine yourself. Is there somebody that you are angry with and you won't let it go? Is there a person who gives you an excuse to act out in anger, you think? Have you let bitterness consume you with someone? And what good does that bitterness do? I mean, all it does is devour. It's so much better to make amends. Have you spoken badly about somebody? Are you repeatedly yelling at your husband, your wife, your children? Are you a difficult person at work or in the home because of your anger? I mean, these are things that must be put under the Lordship of Christ. We have to refuse to sin when we get angry. Whether we need to count till 10, step outside, take a break. But overall, we need to ask God to forgive us. We need to ask God to cleanse us of our sinful anger. We need to hate our sin when it comes up. We need to deal with the things that make us angry, but deal with them in appropriate ways. We need accountability. We need others to pray for us. So our ability to control our emotions of anger, it is critical for our calling under Christ. Uh, We are emotional beings, yes. We will certainly experience anger, yes, but how you deal with that anger is a mark of your spiritual maturity. Emotional outbursts, of anger, they will not gain respect from others, they will not solve the problem, and they do not achieve the righteousness of God. That's what James 1.20 says. Again, one of those markers that I keep coming back to over and over and over. James 1.20, the anger man does not produce the righteousness of God. Well, it's, you know, it's basically saying, we think that anger solves a lot of our problems, and what the scripture says is, no, it's creating your problems. But it's not solving them. It does not prove the right, produce the righteousness of God. So this is a major issue for many of us, and it will require prayer, requires attention, but God's grace is sufficient. He can move us past anger, self-control, power, and love. We'll get to that in our third point. The second thing we wanna look at is prioritizing reconciliation. I'm somewhat tempted to look at verse 23 as a new sermon, a new idea, but Jesus, you see, really connects with verse 21. It's a single thought. Verses 21 and 22, he's telling us what we should not do right with anger but then verse 23 so is what we should do instead of using anger to build up walls and to separate people and hurt them what we're called to be is to build bridges to reconcile people to one another and to be reconciled with others we're called to be peacemakers it's especially true in our personal relationships not only we are we not to be angry to speak against them contemptuously but we are to seek uh, to live in a reconciled condition with all people reconciliation is a path of holiness It's the path that God desires for us. So let's look at verse 23 and 24, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift the altar, and then remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. You can see the priority in verse 23, can't you? It's a very practical step. It's so important that you need to start reconciling right now now that it is okay to exit out of worship. It's okay to leave right now mid-worship to take care of your problem. You don't need to hear the final point. You don't need to sing the final hymn. You don't need to hear the closing prayer. Thankfully, we've already taken the offering, so <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. But your greatest act of worship at this point is to reconcile with someone that you've sinned against, to do it now. Worship will do you no good if you feel a powerful move of the Spirit here, and then you start yelling at your family when you get home. We leave something out if we go home and think that we can offend and give full vent to our anger when we're alone. This is the call to living a life of peace. We reconcile, we work to stay reconciled. So God would rather you settle your conflict than to worship. I mean, this is what I read in my Bible this week in Proverbs 21, 3. Came across this verse and it stuck with me as I thought through this. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to God than sacrifice. You know, reconcile with her brother or sister is more important to God than your sacrifices because it's the right thing to do. You know, and every week I come to face to face with this. You can imagine the Lord's Supper, and here I am to give the Lord's Supper, and I think, wow, you know, I wonder if I've you know, I've offended this person. Am I reconciled with the, the people in my life? You know, should I still serve that day? Should we still be part of this, this worship of God in the Lord's Supper? You know, even to come up here. You know, I, I have to do my best to stay reconciled um, before I come. You know, it's been said that, you know, many pastors have said this. I'd say it about myself. God must have made me a pastor because I need more help than others. Because every week I have to think about this. Every week I have to consider this. But it's true with all of us, right? It's true with all of us. We all need to stay reconciled with us. We all need to think about it before we come to worship. We don't skip church because we're unreconciled. No, we go be reconciled and then come to church. If you are fed on Monday, try to reconcile on Monday or as quickly as you can. Verses 25 and 26, Jesus reminds us of another reason to deal with these matters quickly. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge of the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. I recently picked up this book for my kids and it was called There's No Such Thing as a Dragon. So I read to my four-year-old, my two-year-old. No such thing as a dragon. It's a story of little Billy Bixby. And Billy Bixby wakes up one day and he looks at the edge of his bed and there's a dragon in his room. And he goes downstairs and he tells his mom, Mom, there's a dragon in my room. And she says, Oh, honey, there's no such thing as dragons. And so he goes back up to his room. Now, the, you know, now the, the dragon is as big as his bed, and so he has nowhere to lay down at night. And he goes down, Mom, the dragon is as big as my bed. I have nowhere to lay down at night. And she says, Honey, there are no such thing as dragons. Well, now the dragon's filling up his room. He's like, Mom, I got homework to do. I can't even go in my room because the dragon's there. Honey, there's no such thing as dragons. You know, and this goes on until eventually the dragon is as big as the house and, and, and the dragon's filling up the house and the dragon wants to leave, so he gets up and he starts walking away and the house goes with him. And dad comes home at the end of the day and dad's like, where is our house gone? And so he figures out where the, where the dragon has gone. He goes and he says, what has happened to our house? And then little Billy Bigsby says, he says, oh, the dragon brought our house away. And his mom says, there's no such things as dragons. And then Billy says, yes, mom, there are such things as dragons. And then she looks and she sees it. She says, oh, there are such things as dragons. And then it shrinks. And then they kind of go through a process till the dragon shrinks and becomes down to something as manageable. You know, but it really is a picture of having unresolved issues, unresolved conflict. What does it do? We deny it. We don't pay attention to it. And it just grows and it grows and it grows. I think that's what Jesus is pointing to us here. We got to admit the dragon is there. We know that as things, you know, Jesus is talking about court here, right? We know as things go to court, they're more expensive. You know, lawsuits. They, you know, they could have been prevented if a person would say sorry. We can't words. Agree to make amends. We we'll go to court. Judge could throw the book at us. You know, it's advantageous to stay out of it. To humble ourselves. To take responsibility early. You know, that's what Jesus says to do. And so if you're in a conflict, his point is, this is the time to solve it. Because your debt is smallest right now. You know how how interest grows, right? There's like interest on our bad relationships. Those things grow. Conflict has a way of gaining interest, has a way of gaining momentum. And the only way to stop it is through the humble acknowledgement and working it through. It's best to be humble and reconcile now. We call it keeping short account, right? We keep short accounts. So if there's a $100 debt, that's a lot easier to deal with than a $100,000 debt. It's easier to deal with the dragon when it's small. We keep short accounts. It's the same thing in our personal relationships. We settle them quick. We settle our conflicts quickly. We don't wait till Sunday, we don't let it grow. And if you turn to Matthew chapter 7, maybe you're already in Matthew 5. It's just one page over. Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5, Jesus reminds us this. It doesn't matter what the other person has done. What matters is that you sin against them. That's what you have 100% responsibility for. Look at Jesus' point here in Matthew 7, sorry, in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So you notice, what Jesus is saying here is we don't wait to apologize until we have more sin than the other person does. And we apologize if we have any sin, with another person. Jesus is not focused on what they did to us. The issue is what we've done against them. We don't judge our responsibility on how bad they've offended us, but we judge our responsibility according to God's commands, according to God's standards. And We're confronted with this. That's why we come to church. We gotta remember, you know, we, we're confronted with the commands of God. We're commanded with a conscience. We're commanded to see we're falling short. It reminds us of our sin. Even the confession says we're filth. And I thought, you know, is that an appropriate thing to say? We're the image of God, but we also see there's something that's wrong with us. And we have to be able to acknowledge that. And that awareness, we're far worse than we think we are, is our ability to go and to acknowledge a specific sin to somebody and say, "I've, I've sinned against you. We're reminded of that. At the same time, we're reminded of, God, of God's amazing grace that we're loved far more than we can imagine. So we come here, we hear the word of God, and we should think, "Oh, this is something for me. What do I need to put into practice here?" It's not something for my neighbor, as it's been said, not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, stand in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, stand in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, O oh Lord, stand in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, O oh Lord stand the need of prayer. And Jesus shows us that we'll be judged by God in this. He uses that principle, of the lesser, the greater. If we would have troubles in human court, how much more will we have trouble with God if we don't address conflict with our brothers? And it's why it's important to work to set up good patterns, patterns of reconciliation, keep short sure account, especially in marriage, right? We're never gonna eliminate in our lives or marriages, we're never gonna eliminate conflict 100%, but we can reduce it significantly if we just hold back certain comments, counting to 10, denying ourselves with certain responses, being willing to reconcile when we do sin. As James one as James 1.19 says, "'Know this, my beloved brothers, "'let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger.'" So how do we reconcile to others? The instruction that Jesus gives is we need to make things right. We confess our sins and we repent. We admit how we've created divisions, and we deal with the things we need to change. We must be willing to acknowledge the actual sin we've committed. We don't just acknowledge that we're sinners in general. We need to be able to be particular about our faults. It's really important to be able to say, I am a sinner. That is really true. It's really important to be able to say, I am a sinner. In fact, I don't think you can be saved unless you can say, I am a sinner. But it's even more important to be able to say something like, Last night, I was angry, I yelled at you, I was trying to hurt you with my words, and that was wrong. I say equally, because unless you can do that, I don't know that you can be saved. I mean, we have to learn to name our specific sins. Anger, lust, bitterness, theft, dishonesty, unforgiveness, and we need repentance, We need to commit to making necessary changes. I mean, I've learned the value of being able to say, I'll work on it to do better in the future, but I realize that those words have to have actions that are connected with them. And if restitution is needed, then restitution uh, should be done. If we need to make an apology, pay a debt, submit to accountability, We need to do that. If it's gonna cost us money, freedom, or some form of our pride, we need to set those things aside because we know that whatever it costs us is far less valuable than what we gain in being reconciled. Reconciliation matters more to God than the thing that we lose. It's better for you. The work of reconciliation in the end is grounded in God's grace. And that's what we want to look to next. We look to Romans chapter 5. So if you would turn to Romans 5. Again, I have these passages. I keep going to my sermons over and over, and this is one. So if you've ever underlined this before in a sermon, we're here again. Romans 5, starting in verse 10. And we see here, God has a reason to be angry, but he's reconciled this to himself. That leads to our third point, is live in the peace of God. So as I read this, look for the repeated words. Repeated words, right? They're sometimes the important words. I want you to look for the repeated word here starting in verse 10 for if while we're enemies we are reconciled to God by the death of the son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life more than that we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation the repeated word is reconciled right reconciliation you know we see that you know can circle the important words inside of our Bible you know What we see here is though we are enemies, God set aside that anger towards us in Christ. He's done more than Jesus requires of us in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, we're told that we need to go to somebody that we have offended and go reconcile with them. But in Romans 5, we see that God has come to us even though we were the ones who did the wrong. And he 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 did that because we could never do what needed to be done to be reconciled. Never could have done it. He set the base of reconciliation. This loving, decisive action of Jesus' death had opened a door for reconciliation with God so that now we can admit that we've sinned against him and we can receive the grace needed to reconcile with him and then with others. We're enemies, and now we're friends. And that's all accomplished in the death of Jesus Christ. And that changes us. You know, knowing that reconciliation, that's what leads us in to be peacemakers. It creates a desire within us to live even in a reconciled state with others. You can look at Hebrews chapter 12 verses 14 to 15 where it says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Strive for peace with everyone, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Reconciliation is a work of God's grace. And God's grace is the reason why Jesus points to this in the Sermon on the Mount. Our God is a reconciling God. The gospel is a path of reconciliation. He brings peace. And therefore, as disciples, we walk in that path of reconciliation. If we're to live as Jesus' disciples, we embrace that path. dwell, and and in order to do that, we dwell in his grace. That's why we need this gathering. It's why we need to hear the message of forgiveness, the message of forgiveness of our sins. In a world where we will be offended, in a world where we will offend others, we need to remember the reconciliation that God has made with us. That's what will make you honest in dealing with your faults. You know, knowing that you've already been reconciled to God and so you can be honest with your sins with others. This is life in God's kingdom. It's a life of personal reconciliation, peacefulness, as far as we can have it. It's the rule of Christ over us. And so examine yourself. Is there a pattern of peacefulness and reconciliation that's a part of your life? If you see strife constantly around you, you may be the problem. If it happens at work and the family and other places. In the words of Taylor Swift, I'm the problem, it's me. But think, particularly today, is there someone, even one person you've offended, maybe you heard you offended, but you refuse to go and make things right? Is there a person you refuse to forgive? And this is something for all of our relationships, for people under us, for people over us, for people next to us. Have you turned your anger towards someone else? Confess the way you've sinned against them. Did you yell in anger? Did you withhold affection and anger? Did you nag in anger? Did you curse in anger? Confess those things and don't wait for them to bring it to you. You bring it to them. That's taking initiative. That's what Jesus did in coming to us. He took initiative. We're called to take initiative in being reconcilers. That's God's pattern for peace and reconciliation. It's made made plain to us in Christ. And as we look at Christ, we see what He has done, we learn ourselves in the light of His grace, and we can know we and then we know the value of making peace. Living in peace is what it means to be living in the power of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in your grace you made a path of peace. In Christ, you set aside your anger against us. And our anger does not need to dominate our lives anymore. Father, we ask you, take away its power, take away its attraction. Father, we've seen this destructive. Uh, influences. We've been hurt by the anger of others. Father, we have hurt others in our own anger. Father, some of us here have unreconciled relationships that we can still fix if we just humble ourselves and acknowledge our faults. Father, give us grace to do that. Father, help us to remember Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who reconciled us to you. Though we've sinned greatly, we've sinned in this way greatly, Father, yet we know that your grace is sufficient. And God, knowing his grace, help us to find power. Help us find self control. Help us find the love to do the things that you've called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We can see our closing hymn.